he was, Jackson had obeyed. Proving them wrong cost him his life. The young pilots had adored old John Jackson, and his loss was devastating. The only thing that perhaps numbed their grief was the permanent haze of sickness and exhaustion that clung to them day and night. And now, John's younger brother, Les, was in charge. As they listened, many of them reflected silently on how two brothers could possibly be so unalike. Word had just come through, Les told them, that the long-expected Japanese naval invasion force was on its way, headed for Port Moresby. It could be here any day. Pilots were needed to take off the following morning to try to stop it. Three exhausted pilots for three exhausted machines. Three against an entire amphibious Japanese invasion fleet. Volunteers were needed. It was to be their last operation before being relieved by a squadron of American aerocobras due at any time from Townsville. The men listened, expressionless. The whole thing sounded like a perfectly scripted suicide mission, and yet every one of them took a step forward. This tiny, dishevelled gathering of worn-out young airmen was all that remained of the original twenty or so fresh young pilots of 75 Squadron Royal Australian Air Force, formed barely two months earlier in Townsville, the first fighter squadron to be raised and flown in the direct defence of Australia. It had all been a panic job. A handful of barely trained blokes just out of flying school, thrown together and rushed into combat. They were a mixed lot. Among them a Queensland country teacher, a carpet salesman from Melbourne, an aspiring Sydney radio announcer, and a quiet accountant from Launceston who had blossomed into one of the most fearless of them all. Having hardly been given time to come to grips with handling their aircraft, let alone fighting in them, many of the men could count their hours in Kitty Hawks on the fingers of one hand. Some hadn't even survived the journey north from Australia. On their first day in action against the Japanese back in March, only four of their number could claim any combat experience at all, and that had been on the other side of the world, in the African desert, fighting Germans and Italians, a very different kind of war from this. But that was six weeks ago. There weren't many novices now. For forty-four days, in appalling conditions, flying aircraft that had been pushed to their limits and beyond, this group of men stood as the vanguard of their country's resistance to the juggernaut of Japanese aggression at the terrible dawn of the war in the Pacific. For forty-four days, in one of the most taxing climates on earth, they had stood by their aircraft, the metal often too hot to touch, waiting for the sound of three quick rifle shots or the yell, It's on! before racing to their cockpits and taking off over the scrub and the jungle and the mountains to meet the finest, most hardened pilots flying the vastly superior aircraft the Japan's war machine had produced. For forty-four days, they had fought a true David and Goliath struggle, had been shot at in high-level patrols, bombed and strafed daily on the ground, almost always outnumbered, and had watched their squadron's aircraft and its pilots gradually dwindle to almost nothing. The 44-day air battle of Port Moresby was fought almost entirely over sea, jungle, and a couple of airstrips, witnessed by no one save a handful of Papuan locals who would glance up curiously at the white lines of vapour trails forming silently in the blue skies far above. Some historians have compared those 44 days to the Battle of Britain, with the stakes being arguably as high. But unlike Britain's epic aerial struggle, 
played out over hundreds of targets over southern England a year and a half earlier, this fight in the New Guinea skies revolved around just two. At one end, Port Moresby, its harbour and primitive airstrip covered by the enemy, and at the other, the Japanese base at Ley on the north coast. In between were almost 200 miles of almost uninhabited jungle, with the 14,000-foot razorbacks of the Owen Stanley Ranges rising perilously in the middle. The battle was a long-range duel, repeated day after gruelling day. Also in contrast to their British counterparts, the men of 75 Squadron were completely alone. Incredibly, scandalously, despite years of warning, despite the advances and innovations achieved by Australian aviation during the First World War and its aftermath, this single squadron, this handful of green young men in borrowed aeroplanes, was all that could be mustered to meet the most formidable threat to their country in its history. And, unlike the First World War,